It's an honor and a privilege to be here today. Let's, let's look at our scripture reading for today, please. And if you'll turn with me in the scriptures to Psalm 139. I think it's interesting, the song that we just sang, and where David is at that point in his life. He is oppressed. He thinks God has forgotten him. Where are you, God? This is the man after God's own heart, right? And yet he's singing that particular dirge in his life. We have various times in our lives in which we, we struggle with various things, but the psalm we're going to look at now, Psalm 139, has the answer to Psalm 13. And so, give your attention as we read the Word of God today. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, death, you're there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, you're If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were, were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. 
Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thus the reading of the Word of God. We've got a big task ahead of us here. Many years ago, when I was still in the pastorate, I did a four-week sermon series on the psalm. So I figured this morning I've got about maybe 140 minutes worth of sermon to preach, and my time is running out, so I need to pray. Our Father, our God, our Savior, we bow our hearts before you looking to you to feed us from your word. Uh, many may be looking to be fed later as we go through the other room. But Lord, right now, this is the food and sustenance that we need. And I hope that we crave. Lord, we will be praying with the psalmist, I trust, later, that you would search us and know us. And Lord, lead us. Even during this message, I pray that your Spirit will work in our hearts. And Father, also that you would also t uh, teach my mind and my tongue what to say and what not to say, and to say all to the glory of God. And so we pray these things, knowing that you will bless your word. May I faithfully preach it. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit who is here among us today. Amen. Written by David, Psalm 139 shares his reflections on what he has come to learn and to know about God. The lines of these lyrics reveal rich theological truths. In fact, we could even outline it something like this. And by the way, I do have some things there on for further reference that page that you can notice. If you get bored with the sermon, you can read those. But first of all, verses 1 through 6, he focuses on God's omniscience, how God is all-knowing. Then in verses 7 through 12, it's God's omnipresence that comes into focus as we see Him everywhere. Then in 13 through 18, there's God's omnipotence or sovereignty over all things, including life and the life we live. And then in 19 to 24, we come to face to face with another reality that's very hard to deal with, but nevertheless it's there, and that is God's holiness and His justice. But this is no mere academic study here. This song flows out of David's life experiences, his personal relationship with God, who has called him from the sheepfolds. If you look at the end of Psalm 78, 
And you, you see how Israel has lived, but God called David to come to lead his people, to shepherd his people as their anointed king. So these are the distilled insights that David has discovered in his walk with God in hard times, in good times, at all times in his life. Composed as a song of wonder and praise, we have four stanzas here of six verses each that reveal the great heart of God for his people whom he's created and redeemed. Psalm 139, therefore, is a deeply personal, practical song from the heart of King David. Here, theological truth meets with pastoral encouragement. This psalm is applied theology in the best sense because it answers questions many of us, if not all of us, grapple with from time to time, even as David did in Psalm 13. How well does God know me? That's the first six verses. It's answering that question for us. How close is God to me? I mean, sometimes I feel that He's so distant. I feel like He's forgotten me. How close is He? That's in verses 7 through 12. How carefully has He paid attention to details? When I look into the mirror, I see some things I don't like. When I feel certain things in my body, I'm not sure I'm, I'm real comfortable with all of that. And in our day... There are people who certainly aren't satisfied with who they are and how God has made them. And yet he will deal with that in 13 through 18. And then finally, how far will God go to protect and help me? Can I look to him for that help? That's verses 19 to 24. Now, in light of that, with all these questions and so on, my outline is rather simple and pastoral. I'm a simple person. That's why the KISS method, you're familiar with that? Keep it simple, sparky. So, so I try to be a simple... You got the synonym, didn't you? Okay, so we've got to keep it simple for my heart, for your heart today. So it's the God who knows me, the God who surrounds me, the God who cares for me, and the God who leads me. Now, the frame, the frame in which these pictures of our gracious God hang is evident from what we read in verse 1 and verse 23, where the words search and know appear together at the beginning and end of the psalm. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. But now look at verse 23. Search me and know. O God, and know my heart. What's the difference between those two? The difference in the two verses is simply this. Verse 1 contains a stated truth. God does search us and know us. Whereas verse 23 is a humble, sincere response to the truth. Yes, God, I invite that. I want that. I, I don't want to exclude you from my life. I want you to be integrated with my heart and soul, my being. So these lyrics are David's expression of worship and devotion in light of God's goodness and grace in the course of his life. This is a song we can sing from a full and thankful heart, knowing that this God is our God. He's your God. So first, the God who knows me, verses 1 through 6. 
that David knows, uh, that God knows David and us is vividly described here in a variety of ways. As we simply look at David's choice of words in the opening verses, there's a series of verbs that gives us a 360 degree look at the fact that God knows us inside and out. Circle these words as you look here in these opening verses. Verse 1, search. Verse 1, 2, and 4, the word know. The word discern in verse 2, the latter part. The word search again in verse 3. And, by the way, that's a different word for search. And then the word acquainted down in verse 3b. One writer has suggested that this reads like an extract from a thesaurus. That David is just throwing different words to try to help us see the comprehensiveness of God's knowing us and caring for us. For instance, look at verse 1 again, that, that word search you find there. It means to penetrate, to examine intimately. It was uh, used of spies who would search out the land or of miners who were searching for precious ore or scribes who were searching out the law. It might be used of me having prepared over these last few weeks for this message alone. You search it out. In verses 1, 2, and 4, you come across the word no. Meaning to know experientially, deeply, personally. It's not just raw data. Early in our marriage, you know, I mean, I obviously knew her, Kathy, well enough to ask her to marry me. And she was blind enough to say yes. And, and so as we got married, I wanted to know everything I could about her. And I had a book. And my book was written. All kinds of things about her, things she liked, things that she didn't like, things, flavors, taste. I, I, I just, I, I won't go a lot further than that. I'll just simply tell you, I kept a lot of stats about her in this book because I wanted to know her so that if I bought her something, if I wanted to express her, I knew what to do, what to get, where to go. All right, so, so it's not just raw data we're talking about here. This word for know is this experiential personal knowledge. To discern it means to understand a person so that he might respond in ways that are best for that person. God knows each one of us. What I need may not be what you need, but God knows that, and he cares about that. Or this word search, once again, this is a different word here in verse 3a. It means uh, it, to, to fan or to spread or to scatter and disperse. It's used of winnowing in a sense of sifting through, sorting out the good and the bad, which is what I need to do in my attic, but I've not done that in 34 years, so you can only imagine. But God sorts all these things out. And, of course, being acquainted here with us, this word 3b means to know what would be a best use to, for the profit and the good and the service of this person. So you've got a comprehensive idea, but I don't want you to get lost in the words and miss the message. He's showing us here how fully God knows everything about us, and there is nothing hidden from Him. Nothing. David explains it this way, verse 2. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Verse 3a, you search my path when I'm out walking and when I lie down. Picture it this way. From the beginning of the day to the end of the day, God is aware of all that goes on in your life. I think we kind of know that on the surface. But David has now lived a life long enough to see, wait a minute, this is far deeper than I ever realized. Notice he says here in uh, verse 3b, you are acquainted with all my ways. So whatever I do, wherever I go, he knows, he sees. But beyond that, God knows all that I think. Look at 2b. You discern my thoughts from afar. And God knows all that I say. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God already knew about the sermon. He knew when I would flub something with my tongue. He knew when I would get something right. He, he knew all of these things. And by the way, to some degree, this, this is something you experience in a very small way in your marriage, don't you? Because there are times in which we are driving somewhere, or we're going somewhere, and I'll say something, or she will say something, and I will look at her and I'll say, I knew you were going to say that. Because you know the person well enough and how they respond. Well, God doesn't know it simply because he kind of has some intuitive idea. He knows all of these things. And such a self, uh, such a knowledge, all-encompassing knowledge of God here knowing us can be terribly threatening, can it? In fact, some have taken that the spirit behind verse 5 Uh, with its seeming cryptic words, also teach this. Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. uh, God, I don't like this, that you're all over me and that you know everything about me. I'd like to hide some things. I don't want you to know everything about me. Could have intimidated David. A God who is always... Watching? Always listening? One writer said this. He said, the writer of Hebrews, I included this for you, Dennis. The writer of Hebrews sums up the contents of this well-known psalm. Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I was talking with someone earlier. We were talking about the fact it's, you know, it's really, when we look back at our past sometimes, there's some things there. I hope God didn't see that. hope God doesn't know that. Too late. He does. And yet for David and for us, this is not something intimidating. This is something to bring comfort and encouragement. It tells us that God is interested in us, even in our flaws. He's involved in our, uh, our lives. And, and, and look at the statement at the end of verse 5. He says, you cup your hand over me. Uh, now, that's not a hand coming down. This is a hand 
that's protecting and holding and caring for you, as we're going to see further here in a moment. This is His protection of us, even as we read about in John 10 a little bit earlier in the service. David does not resent God's shepherd-like care. David himself is a shepherd king. He knows what it means to know the flock, to care for his flock. And God is that great shepherd for David. This is why we read in verse 6 of David's joyful response there, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. It is like a massive fortress of truth to realize that God knows all about me and still loves me and cares for me and will be with me. In the original language, the word wonderful, it is too wonderful for me, actually stands first in the sentence for emphasis. A more pointed translation would be after he said all this, is wonderful it is. This is wonderful that you would care about me. You see, God is not a threat to the righteous. He's a refuge, which brings us to our second point, the God who surrounds me, verses 7 through 12. Now, in the first six verses, we learn that God knows us. I remember uh, years ago during an Olympic broadcast, there was a new way of meeting athletes that was designed by the network. I think a young Bob Costas, as I recall, was the one who put this together. But they called it the segment at the Olympics, Up Close and Personal. Remember that where you were going to get up close to these athletes. You were going to get to know their backgrounds, their interests, their families. But the real question is how many of us were ever truly up close and personal with any of those athletes? Maybe Costas was. But we weren't. I mean, how many of you, I'm not asking for raising of hands, how many of you even know an Olympic athlete personally? Not many of us would. And I suppose we could wonder the same thing as we look at this first section of the psalm, verses 1 through 6. God tells us that He knows, but how close then? If He knows us, how close is God going to get to us? How connected are we to Him? Maybe it's a relationship from afar. Isn't that what verse 2 said? So it's kind of a distant thing. Maybe he just Googled me and found out something on a divine database about my life. Maybe he friended me on Facebook. So, how near is God to me? And David says, God surrounds me. He's never away from me. And are the words, verse 7 through 12, therefore, to be made negatively again or positively? Is David fearful or thankful for God's presence? While these verses can serve as a warning to those who resist God, they are a comfort for all of us who take refuge in Him. This stanza of David's song begins with a double rhetorical question which really sets the stage for us. Look there in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? See the word presence? You know what that word is in the Hebrew? His face. The face is always there. His questions are followed by a series of contrasts and scenes that answer uh, with a resounding nowhere. There's nowhere you can go that God is not there. Where can you go and flee from God? Think about it. Not in Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they try to do? They tried to hide. Could they hide from God? No. 
not on a ship headed for Tarshish, on which Jonah tried to flee from God. It's the same words here. Did he flee from God? Did he escape? No, his plan failed. And here's the troubling thing. It's not for the wicked either. They cannot escape. Revelation 6, let me read this. Verses 15 to 17, Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling unto the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The unrighteous will not stand. That's why we seek for the way everlasting, as we'll come to. But David here is not fearing, dreading God's knowledge or presence. He's embracing it. He's celebrating it. He is encouraged and comforted by it. Now, this is evident as David takes us through, uh, 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 through three scenes to reveal the presence of God in all places, at all times, and in all circumstances. The first here, God is there in the heights and the depths of life. That's verses 7 and 8. God is there in the heights and depths of life. He is asked, where, where, verse 7. David now uses some polar opposites to express the totality and inclusion of everything between two extremes. This is something Fred Sloan talked about last Sunday night here in the service. A merism, as, it called, you know, as, as a literary device. But you use extreme opposites to embrace all in between. And that's what he's about to do. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, death, the grave, you are there. And the Hebrew syntax here is much more dramatic than the English translation. It would read literally this way. If I ascended to heaven, you... If I ascend to Sheol, you. It was kind of like two days ago when I came home a little early from work at the golf course where I work, one of the places I work, and I came home because we had storms, lightning storms. We got everybody off the course and things like that. So, oh, you can go home. I headed home. And I texted Kathy, told her I was coming home, trying to be good, you know. But she said, okay, I'll be heading out in just a few minutes for some errands. So I came home. I pulled in. The van was still there. So, well, she hasn't left yet. So I walk up to the door, and I reach for the handle. Kathy opens the door, and it's like, <gasps> I thought I would have to call a doctor. I, I apologize profusely. I didn't know she was going to be on rights, but it was open the door. You! <laughs> oh, it's you! <laughs> All right, this, this is the, the way David feels. If you try to run and hide, you can't run and hide. God's going to be there. Now, here's a silly illustration, but it works. I remember from childhood a cartoon character who was attempting to get away from another character who was constantly show up at every turn behind a door at a window across town all over the place and maybe you've seen one of the cartoons like this i i that i like good literature and cinema like that but but 
No matter where the first character tried to hide and flee, he would always find the other guy there staring him in the face because he was already there. How frustrating. But in the cartoon, we usually discovered that the one doing the chasing had a twin. And so that's who was there. It wasn't just one person. Because we all know that, that someone can't be every place all the time. Surely God can't be everywhere. But He is. So if I ascend or descend, I'll find God. In verses 9 and 10, David gives further dimensions of God's presence. 9 and 10 is this. God is there in the length and the breadth, breadth of life. He's there in the length and breadth of life. He says in verses 9 and 10, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And this, this is a beautiful image here that he is painting. Those wings of the morning point us to the east where the sun rises each day. And those wings may well be, if you've ever seen or taken pictures of a sunrise, you will see that they're like rays coming out in the morning. So he says, if I take the wings of morning, this may also indicate the wings of the morning, how fast it travels. You ever been somewhere, we, Kathy and I, for our 50th anniversary last year, uh, went on a cruise, first time we'd ever gone on a cruise. But every morning we would wake up before sunrise, and we would go out to watch the sunrise. And in the evening, the same thing for the sunset. But it was amazing because sun would start to rise. I'd turn to say something and turn back around. It's light like this because you're out in the open sea. The light is coming quickly. It's the speed of light. It's taking wings. David here takes the wings of the morning. And he turns to look, if you look at verses 9 and 10, to the uttermost parts of the sea. He is now facing west, and he's headed west. He's heading west on the, the, the wings of the morning, the speed of light, and the sun where it will set into the Mediterranean, because that's what Israel could see from their west coast. So taking the wings of morning at the speed of light tells us that whether we Start the morning in the east and go to the west to where we go from horizon to horizon. God is present. It's as if He is not only pursuing us, He precedes us. He is there. But notice how David accepts this assurance with joy. He says here in verse 10, Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Child of God, remember this always. The paths of life can never take me where God does not follow. The paths of life can never take me where God does not follow, where God does not lead me, where God does not hold me in his hand. I love the song, he will hold me fast. No matter what comes at me, no matter what burdens, no matter what joy, God's going to be there to celebrate or to comfort and to encourage. But it doesn't stop there. God is there in the darkness and the light, verses 11 and 12. By the way, were you ever afraid of the dark when you were growing up? I, I, uh, I, I remember when Monsters, Inc. 
came out. And I watched that with the kids. And uh, it's about monsters who live under the bed and in the closet and all these kind of places. Uh, I, I experienced some of that as a child growing up. I was an only child. I know it explains a lot of things. Mother couldn't have any other children. Didn't want any other children after me, I'm sure. But, but I would lie in my bed at night in that room upstairs with pine trees, tall pine trees just outside my window. And there were sounds and shadows and creaks and silence. And it filled my mind with imagination and with questions and with fears at times. Now, thankfully, just to relieve you, I did get over that a couple of years ago. But as we grow older, the darkness takes on different forms, different shades. Because darkness can come at any time of day in our lives. The darkness of my sin. The darkness of my past. The darkness of my, my heartaches, my losses, the heartaches of bad news. The darkness of pain. And for someone like me, an old man, the darkness of the shadow of death. What does David have to say about this? Look with me here in 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. In fact, uh, one way they, they express in one commentary was, it's like, like father, like son. It's like, like darkness, like light. There's no difference for God. It's all the same to him. In fact, when it says that uh, if darkness falls on us, that's, that's a very interesting word. It, it means to bruise, to hurt. It's the same word used in Genesis 3.15. We are people who have been bruised by the darkness, aren't we? But our God is the God who overcomes darkness. He sent His Son to be the light of the world and for our souls. And for us, darkness fell upon Him and bruised his heel that he might lift up our heads. Praise God for that. And nothing can separate us from his love, not even darkness. Third stanza. The God who cares for me. Verses 13 to 18. In the first two stanzas of this song, we learn that God knows everything about us, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our movements, even our motives. That's the word thoughts up there back in verses 1 and 2 where you see the word thoughts. It's talking about our motivations. He knows what we think before we think it. He knows what we'll say before we say it. And He's present everywhere that life will take us. So the third stanza here of David's song of praise begins with the word, notice, for, F-O-R, connecting verses 13 to 18 with all that has been said thus far. Here, David provides an explanation as to why or how God knows us so thoroughly. It's because in creating us, God cares for us. And because we are His, we belong to Him, we bear His image. So take, David takes us back even not simply to our birth but to our conception, allowing us to see God's hand in our lives, creating us physically and ordering our days, all our days, from start to finish. We are God's handiwork. So in this, we see the sovereignty 
and the power of God informing our parts and framing our days. He creates life and he creates a life. Get the nuance here. First, God formed my parts. God created life. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The you there is emphatic in the Hebrew. You and you only. Not by chance. Not mother nature. That always bothers me when I hear people talk about what mother nature does for us. But it's God who does that. He formed my parts. This is an unusual word that means to create, but it has the sense of to acquire a possession. That is, we go out and purchase something so that we are His creative or created possession. Psalm 100 verse 3 says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. David compares God here to a skilled artisan, weaving the threads of my physical being into an amazing tapestry. I don't know if I should take the time, but I'm going to read just a little bit of this from a a medical doctor, Richard Swinson. He offers this amazing description. The body is made up of cells, and we have over 100 trillion. Deep within each cell is the nucleus, and within the nucleus are 23 pairs of chromosomes consisting of a tightly coiled DNA, encoded DNA that contains the design instructions for the entire human body. All of these 100 trillion cells began very inauspiciously as one single microscopic speck the fertilized egg, and within this tiny first cell is the blueprint for building an entire human body with a complexity that is incomprehensible. He went on to say, he says, I'm a man with a degree, medical degree. I'm a man who has a physics degree, and I can't even get the time on my radio in the car right. And yet God knows all of these things. God knew about that, for instance. God knows all things. From the moment of my conception, God was there at work, shaping, forming, creating, guiding everything. David writes, my frame was not hidden from you. This is verse 14. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. There's two euphemisms for the the womb. All this captures the imagination and wonder of David who exclaims here, verse 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. (sighs) Blows my mind, says David, in our vernacular. But it's not only the God who formed my parts. He also frames my days. God creates a life as well. Just doesn't make us alive and forget us. He creates a life here. Notice it, more more than just the physical being, he's shaping us by his sovereign will verse 16 your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them god knew my origin point he knows my expiration date i know the first i don't know the last but god does and that's in his will That's in his plan. That's in his timing. 
He's planned out our days, and he uses a word formed here associated with a potter who shapes the clay on the wheel, turning the wheel, and every pressure from his hand, every element in the design of, of, of that is shaped. So are our lives also. Again, David is caught up in the wonder of all this. Is this awesome God who knows, who surrounds, who created him, who cares for him. And I listen to his response in verse 17. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. David is so overwhelmed here that God should be so attentive to him that his God would, would focus his thoughts so intently on him that God cared for every detail of his life. And he says in verse 18, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. Can you imagine going down to the beach and spending your day counting grains of sand? I don't think you get to enjoy the beach very much. But that's God in the details of our life. Now, I've never tried to count the sands of the sea. Maybe I'll do that this year. But, but then comes this unusual statement. He says in verse 18b, I awake and I am still with you. Some have taken this to mean that he has fallen asleep in death. And therefore, when he wakes up, he'll see God also. But I think it's more linked with what he has just said about the sum of all these things so vast. I can start counting these things until, until I'm so obsessed with it or I drift off into sleep in my meditation that when I wake up, I realize, oh, well, God is still here, even though I've drifted off. But the reality, the true reality is that from the moment you were conceived to the day that you lie in the dust of time, God knows, God is there, and God cares for you. I hope you get that. Now the last point. I've saved the hardest for last. I mean, the best for last. The God who leads me, verses 19 and 24. So here's the God who knows us intimately, who is with us continually, has made us wonderfully, but he is also the God who judges all righteously. This final standard speaks of that. As David, first of all, in verses 19 and 22, here's David's response to the evil around him. He lives in a fallen world, just like you and I do. It sounds as if there is an abrupt shift here, perhaps even a little bit disjointed in his psalm, but let's see. The verses leading up to the stanza have been filled with a sense of wonder and awe, but then we read these words in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Now, where did that come from? Well, let me tell you. It came as he's been meditating over a lifetime, and he actually is taking us back here to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Let me explain. To appreciate and comprehend the logic of what David says here, we go back to these psalms. In Psalm 1, David wrote of two kind of people. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. The first prospers, the, the latter perishes. Then Psalm 2, he warns that those who set themselves against God, who plot against the anointed, the Lord will laugh at them and hold them in derision and He will set His wrath against them through his anointed king. They will be broken with a rod of iron. They will be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels. Listen, David was that anointed king of God in the Old Testament. He appointed him to defeat and crush God's enemies in his day. But he also foreshadowed the greater King of kings and Lord of lords, who would crush the serpent's head and all who follow the way of wickedness. David chooses the way everlasting. 
while the wicked have chosen the way of destruction and they will face God's judgment. David observes the world around him and sees many who reject God foolishly. In fact, he talks about the wicked. Men of blood, they speak against God. They have malicious intent, plans, aims. They are God's enemies, they're called here. They take God's name in vain. They hate God. They rise up against God. And so David has to make a choice. Here is the seed of the serpent setting himself against the seed of the woman, and we should expect conflict and judgment to come. David does not want to live like the wicked. He wants no part of the way and life of destruction, and so he's made a choice because no one can be neutral in a world at war with God. You cannot choose neutrality. James 4, 4 says and reminds us we are either in friendship with God or in friendship with the world. David knows that he is the Lord's anointed. He can pray that prayer. Jesus can pray that prayer. And I'll tell you why. If you look at verses 20 and 22, it speaks of God's enemies. And then David says, they are my enemies too. So those who are God's enemies are his enemies. As John Stott said, David has come to count God's enemies as his own enemies. So David makes a choice. It's seen in this twofold way. In denouncing wickedness or rejecting wickedness. Another, another word for hate here in the passage, another translation for it, is to reject. He hates and rejects the way of wickedness. So he is denouncing wickedness, and he's hungering for righteousness. But we still, in this day, reach out with the gospel, with the good news of salvation. We share the love of God, even though the world may reject it, because that's what God has called us to do. And, and then finally here, and I do have 30 seconds, <laughs> David's response to the evil within him. It was the world without him. But also, he responded. having said all these words, he didn't look at his own heart. Simply denouncing the world and its wickedness does not address the issues in David's heart or my heart. And so, I need to turn to God and have him check me out. Look again in verse 23. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way. Grievous way is anything that will, that will cause God to be offended or would show that my intentions are wrong. He says, lead me in the way everlasting, the way that Abraham walked, Isaac walked, Jacob walked, Joseph walked, Moses walked, David himself has walked, but we look to Jesus who lived out his life for us. And we need to walk in the way everlasting. So search me, know me, test me. I wish I had time to do all that, but my time is gone. So, here is a man after God's own heart, showing the things that such a heart chooses to love and chooses to hate. And like David, we too and should willingly, gladly say, search my heart, O God. Know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See, is there any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? Do you know this God? 
He knows you. Do you know this God? As someone has said, the last thing anyone wants to hear on the last day is simply this. I never knew you. Do you know God? John 17, 3, Jesus prayed this. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, as we bow our heads at the end of this message, may the truths here continue to ring in our souls, even this afternoon and all this week. You know us. You surround us. You care for us. And you're there to lead us. And so may we humble ourselves so that we might follow you completely. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll take your hymnal and turn to